It's been a little over two weeks since Robert Mueller submitted his long-awaited report to Attorney General William Barr, and 13 days since Barr wrote his terse three-and-a-half-page letter revealing what he called the principal conclusions from Mueller's investigation. And yet, the plot thickens and the tensions mount. How accurately did the Attorney General summarize Mueller's findings? In recent days, there have been stories in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and NBCNews.com that have cited complaints by Mueller's deputies that Barr's letter was misleading and that Mueller's evidence on whether President Trump obstructed justice is far more damning than the AG acknowledged. Is Barr covering up for Trump? Or are Mueller's deputies grumbling because they didn't get their way? And how much of the Mueller report will we actually get to read when Barr finally releases, perhaps as early as next week, his own redacted version? We'll discuss those subjects, as well as the House Democrats' move to get President Trump's tax returns, and Michael Cohen's extraordinary Hail Mary to stay out of federal prison on this special bonus episode of Skullduggery. because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isagoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So the Mueller mystery deepens as we all await to see what he actually wrote in this report. You know, it's funny, like the there have been like three bits of news involving the Mueller report that we've all you know kind of gone crazy over. First, it was just the fact that the Mueller report had been delivered to the Justice Department. We had no idea what was in it, and everyone scrambled to cover that news. Then it was the Barr letter, which had obviously some important news in it, but left a lot unsaid. And now, finally, we are waiting to get the actual report itself. And I dare say, I think this is the one that's going to have the most actual news in it and narrative detail and actually things that this president did that we didn't know about. And um, it's 400 pages. Everyone will be dissecting it. In some ways, I think this is you know, going to be the big one. Exactly. And I do think that this is a pretty high stakes game for Barr and for Trump. Because if the actual report turns out to be substantially different than what Barr wrote in his letter, not only is he going to have egg on its face, it's going to seem like evidence of a cover-up, that the attorney general appointed by the president was deliberately concealing and misleading in order to protect the president, even if Barr has actual cover for what he wrote. So I I thought, just to start out this discussion, it would be worth just dissecting that 
three and a half page letter from two Sundays ago in which Barr laid out what he said were the principal conclusions of the report. And when you actually look at it, there's only one actual sentence, full sentence that is quoted from the Mueller report. And then there are four partial quotes from the Mueller report. Now, the full sentence that is quoted in the Barr letter says, the investigation did not establish that members of the Trump campaign conspired or coordinated with the Russian government in its election interference activities. So one thing that leaps out at that is, he says, the Russian government. What about others who are connected to the Russian government, affiliated with the Kremlin, Putin cronies like, say, Deripaska, the aluminum magnate, and a whole host of other characters who may have been involved in some way and had communications with the people in the Trump orbit, well, but yeah, we were know, not formally part of the government. Yeah, and we, and we know that this is how the Russians operate and that Putin operates. Russian intelligence, they maintain ties to people who once worked in their organizations for a long time. You know, there's, a, I think, a saying that... Uh, once a Russian spy, always a Russian spy. So I think that's a really fair point. And then there are other questions about the, um, the, you know, the collusion piece of the investigation in which Barr says that Mueller you know, essentially cleared Trump. We may learn a lot more about other approaches from the Russians to the Trump campaign. And it may be that, I, mean, I think we know, uh, that they didn't necessarily take up the requests of, of the Russians to coordinate um, or to, you know, actually work together to, to throw the election. But they also didn't report those contacts to the FBI. So, you know, there's a lot on the collusion side that we may learn as well. But I think where it gets more interesting is on the obstruction side, because right. as we know, Mueller did not come to a judgment and uh, explicitly did not exonerate the president. So, what is in there on obstruction that we don't already know? And why didn't Mueller come to a conclusion? Right. That's going to be really interesting to see. Right. Well, look, and, you know, that gets to some of the partial quotes, because one of them is the special counsel states that those are bar words. And then he has a partial quote. While this report does not conclude that the president committed a crime, it also does not exonerate him. So... Please explain, Attorney General Barr and Special Counsel Mueller, why not did it not exonerate him and what's the rest of it? And then that also leads to what I still find the most baffling question about all of this is why didn't Mueller make a call? one way or another. That's what he was hired to do, to be the special counsel, not to punt to a political appointee like the attorney general. It is still utterly mysterious and inexplicable in a way that in what was probably the most consequential decision of his long, illustrious career, Robert Mueller punted. So, he, yeah. So look, we and, and maybe there'll be some evidence as to why he did that when the report comes out. But one thing we do know from, I think, sounds like excellent reporting in both the New York Times and, and the Washington Post, is that 
Some members of the Mueller team, we don't know who, we don't know how many, were extremely disappointed, even angry, that uh, Barr put out such a terse letter, did not include any of the, the details that they themselves, the Mueller team, had put in their own summaries that would have laid out some of this conduct clearly would have, it sounds like in their view, sounded much more damning uh, than what was in the very dry, terse bar letter. And this goes to, I think, a a relevant point, which is that when this report comes out, it's not just going to be dry legal language and, you know, conclusions. It's going to have narrative information. It's going to talk about certain things that people did and contacts that they had. And that is typically, you know, has far more impact. And you actually see the conduct, the actions, it's textured, it has flavor, it has things that people can relate to. And that's why I think that when the report does come out, it's going to have a lot more impact. And I think it will, whether it was intentional or not, make Barr look like he was trying to put the best face on all of this for the president, and perhaps trying to set a certain narrative so that he'd have some time that when the report finally did come out, the narrative was kind of fixed and would would help the president. And and, and that's why I do think there's a danger for, a, a really big danger for Barr here. Look, he's a smart guy. He's been around a long time. I think he, you know, he sort of prides himself on understanding and knowing how to navigate the guardrails of politics and the law. But, you know, the one thing that could really bite you in the ass is new information that undercuts what you had previously said. Ultimately, that was the smoking gun date with Nixon, right? I mean, it's when there was an actual tape showing that Nixon had lied and what he had previously said was, you know, didn't hold up. I don't know that this is nearly as dramatic as that, but it is a parallel. And if, in fact, there is damning stuff in that report that Barr papered over and whitewashed in his dry, terse three-page letter. He may have legal cover. He can say, well, I said it didn't exonerate him, but I don't think that's going to carry the day. And I think it could you know, give uh, entirely new legs to a story that I think the Trump people were hoping was going to die yeah. out. Yeah, and look, I mean, yeah. a, a charge like obstruction, a legal question like whether someone obstructed justice, is sort of inherently a subjective judgment. There are all these different factors that you have to consider, you know, intent, whether they were obstructing a particular proceeding, you know, all these things that clearly Mueller, who's no slouch himself as a lawyer, thought was a really, really difficult call, so difficult that he couldn't make it himself. And so there is just no doubt, it seems to me, that when this report comes out, there will be lawyers on both sides who will be arguing on the one side that it was obstruction, on the other side that it wasn't obstruction. So for Barr to have made this decision, which is essentially you know, at the end of the day, his legal opinion and supported by, I think he said, the Office of Legal Counsel and Rod Rosenstein, that just is going to put him in a very difficult uh, position. 
Now, we should, we should point out that there's this whole other issue of how much of the report we're going to see. And um, Na uh, Jerry Nadler, chairman of the House Judiciary, is taking a hard line. The uh, Judiciary Committee on uh, Party Line Vote voted subpoenas that Nadler can use to subpoena the entire report. And um, I think we've got a clip of uh, what Nadler had to say about that and um, what he has to say about Barr's claims of invoking various privileges to prevent full disclosure of the report. This is uh, Nadler talking right after the committee vote. We're going to work with the attorney general and uh, uh, for a short period of time in the hope that, uh, uh, that he will, that he will uh, uh, reveal to us the entire Mueller report and all the underlying materials and we'll go to court uh, to, to get permission to have the 6E material. Uh, uh, but if that doesn't work out in a very short order, we will issue the subpoena. What does that mean in a very short order? I mean, you're willing to do that as soon as this week to serve the Justice Department with subpoenas? A very short order. Beyond, I, I can't say which, how many will, days. Are you willing to negotiate any middle ground in terms of redactions no. of the You're not? No. The committee must see everything, as was done in every prior instance. Uh, obviously, some material will have to be redacted uh, before it's released to the public uh, to protect privacy, to protect the various rights. But uh, the committee is entitled and must see all the material and make judgments as to what can be redacted for the public release uh, by ourselves. We handle confidential material all the time. We have uh, facilities to do that. We make those judgments. Uh, and, and we're not willing uh, to let the attorney general, uh, who after all is a political appointee of the president, uh, make that substitute his judgment for ours. So there he is making clear, uh, Nadler is, that he wants to see everything in the report, every word of it, all the uh, evidentiary support for the report, which presumably would mean multiple FBI 302s. But there are, you know, Barr has taken a very clear line, and he's carved out certain exceptions to what he will not provide the committee. And it starts with grand jury information. And in the um, uh, statement that we got from Kerry Kupek, who's the uh, chief of public affairs of the Justice Department, right after the Judiciary Committee vote, she says every page of the quote confidential report, and those words are in quotes, provided to Attorney General Barr was marked, may contain material protected under federal criminal procedure 6E, law that protects confidential grand jury information, and therefore could not be publicly released. Given the extraordinary public interest in the matter, the Attorney General decided to release the report's bottom line findings and his conclusions immediately without attempting to summarize the report with the understanding that the report itself would be released after the redaction process. So one thing that they don't say, or Kerry Kupek didn't say in that statement, is whether Barr will go to the chief judge of the uh, court in Washington to seek permission to unredact that grand jury information and release it as part of the report, something he has the authority to do. And when I pressed Kerry Kupek on whether the attorney general is considering such an action, I got total silence. Well, I mean, it seems to me that he's already said that this is a, that because of the enormous public interest 
in this case, he was going to put these conclusions out quickly, which he did, and that he was going to try to be as transparent as possible. So what is the argument for not going that next step and going to the judge and requesting that uh, the, that 6E information or grand jury information be uh that they allow that to be released publicly. I, I don't. That would be a an explicit call that he would make. You know, not to do that, which would suggest that he doesn't want it coming out and doesn't think that it has the high public interest that he's already suggested it has. I don't understand what the argument would be. Right. Look, we have to see. We'll have to see how much whether the bulk of the report can reflect the grand jury information without actually quoting from grand jury testimony. You know, perhaps Mueller was able to summarize. Well, the gist yeah. of it in some way, we just don't know. Also, I Look, sincerely doubt that every single page of that 400-page report has a grand jury protected information on it. I think that is just, you know, lawyers are, you know, they take belt and careful. suspenders, right. belt yes. and suspenders approaches, and, you know, they just mark every page. And, and it says may contain grand jury information. It doesn't mean it does. And moreover, from reporting in the Washington Post, we know that the lawyers working for the special counsel's office, those who believe that their summaries uh, should have been made public, that they wrote those su summaries in ways that it would be easy to take out the grand jury information and put those summaries out. And uh, Barr chose not to do that. Now, I think the Justice Department's reason, Kerry Kupex says they didn't want to put the report out in piecemeal fashion. First right. you do the conclusions, then you do as much as you possibly can. That's yeah. their argument. Yeah. And, you know, it's not completely unreasonable. I think that once the report was submitted, you know, there was going to be enormous public pressure to say something about it. What's in it? I mean, think about it. If here we were today, two weeks later, and we knew nothing about what Mueller found, we'd probably all be going crazy. But let's uh, move on to a couple of other issues that are worth taking note of. One is uh, the House Democrats. Richard Neal, chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, has finally done what we said was going to be done about three or four weeks ago on skullduggery, which is formally request uh, from the IRS and the Treasury Department a copy of President Trump's tax returns. Well, Trump could be more nervous about this than about uh, the release of the full Mueller report. He's fought harder to keep these tax returns private than pretty much anything else. He hired a lawyer, a uh, lawyer, I don't know if you've heard of this guy, William Consovoy, who has now written a letter to the Treasury Department basically saying, do not do anything with these tax returns until you get the Justice Department to weigh in. That would be Bill Barr again, presumably. Uh, but he's also <laughs> right. made, made- Barr's cavalry to the rescue yeah, yeah, yeah. of the uh, president once again. Yeah. yeah. But he's also made the beginnings of their legal argument, an argument that they may, in the end, may have to make in the Supreme Court as to why these tax returns should not be released. Now, and we should point out, because I want to get into the argument that they are using in this letter, this uh, the uh, Trump lawyer is using in the letter. But there is a 1924 law passed in the aftermath of the Teapot Dome scandal that does give the Ways and Means Committee the authority yeah. to seek and, and receive it's pretty clear. Uh, confidential tax returns. It's pretty clear. It, 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 the language is that the Treasury Secretary, quote, shall furnish 
any return or return information specified in a request from the head of the House or Senate tax writing committees. Uh, there's not a lot of ambiguity there. So what the All right, what, so what's the argument of Trump's lawyer in this uh, in this letter? Well, it it looks like a kind of a kitchen sink approach. I think that's typically what lawyers will do when there isn't a kind of clear-cut legal argument to make. So they say things he says in his letter that uh, the tax code zealously guards the privacy of individual Americans that would, you know, I guess extend to the president of the United States as well. They say that the intent of this law was not so that members of one party could attack, politically attack, you know, officials from another party. And they make right. a and they make a First Amendment argument as well that uh, the reason you have a First Amendment right not to uh, well, have anybody see your tax returns. Well, they're, they're, it's a little more complicated than that, which is that the premise of their argument is that the Democrats are doing this because they're trying to attack a president from an opposing party and they're trying to, they don't like his politics and they don't like his speech. And so the letter says, even when ways and means can identify some legitimate committee purpose, it cannot request tax returns and return information to punish taxpayers for their speech or politics. The First Amendment freedoms of speech, political belief and association apply to congressional investigations. So I don't know. I mean, this is clearly going to be tested in the courts. I mean, I like some of the language. Uh, I mean, this lawyer is probably earning his pay just for the language, saying this would open up a Pandora's box that would allow a gross abuse of power by a congressional committee to, quote, attack, harass, and intimidate their political opponents. Yeah, and and it also says that there has to be a legislative purpose to this action. But pretty much anything the legislature does is sort of, by definition, legislative purpose. I mean, they can say this executive is, branch oversight. This is this is o- this is oversight. We're go and and we're going to look into this and then write laws to make sure that presidents uh, turn over their tax returns as a matter of law. I think, in fact, there are already legislation being introduced to do that. So I, I don't think it's that hard for Congress, for the Democrats in, in Congress, to uh, argue that they have a legislative uh, purpose for. Uh, providing this kind of oversight over the president of the United States, but but this will all be battled out in the well, courts. Yeah, in the end of the day, this, like a lot of uh, these issues, is uh, will be resolved in the courts. And, you know, one reason, that's one reason why Mitch McConnell and the president have been so avid about stacking the courts with uh, political allies who are likely to rule in their favor. But speaking of unusual letters, the one that really grabbed me this morning is this extraordinary letter from our old pal and skullduggery guest, Lanny Davis, uh, throwing a Hail Mary, trying to get the House Democrats to intervene in some way with the courts with the judge in New York to keep Michael Cohen from going to federal prison next month when he is scheduled to report for his three-year sentence that he's been convicted 
for. And um, what Lanny is saying is, oh, Cohen just got access to these 14 million files that he got back, that the Southern District gave back to him after they raided his office, and he's got to go through them, and he needs to be readily accessible and immediately available to provide ongoing assistance to Congress in order for it to fulfill its executive branch oversight responsibilities. So you need my guy, Michael Cohen, to do your job, House Democrats. So please uh, intervene and keep uh, Michael Cohen from having to serve his prison sentence anytime soon. Okay. Well, what I'll say about this is I think that it is possible that Lanny Davis will win the chutzpah award from the <laughs> from the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, but yeah. but, but as a practical matter, uh, this strategy is not going to fly. I mean, look, the Justice Department, uh, which it, it's their responsibility to make these uh, deals with witnesses or people that they bring cases again and cut deals with them in exchange for their cooperation, they did that. His sentence was presumably reduced uh, because of the cooperation he gave. And so somewhat. Remember, the Southern District was not at all pleased with his cooperation. No, they and they weren't, that but they said that his... his, his uh, in, in their sentencing memo, they were quite harsh. Yeah. And talked about how he did not fully cooperate and answer all their questions. Right. Well, and then you go to Congress. And the idea that First of all, I don't even think I, I haven't heard reaction. Have you heard whether what the reaction has been from Democrats? Uh, yeah, in, I mean, I, yes. I mean, the, it, the words cited to me are "it's not going to happen." Right. <laughs> I, right. And the, I, I doubt. Jerry I doubt. And, and Elijah Cummings are not going to step in and write a letter to the federal judge saying, no. "We need no. Michael Cohen, so please don't send him to uh, to federal prison." I talk to people close to Cohen as all these events were unfolding. And it was always clear that he just didn't want to go to prison. And everything he was he has been doing over the last several months is to somehow construct a case that is going to keep him out of serving the sentence that he has been sentenced to. Right, and, which all that does, uh, all that really does is undercuts the credibility of his testimony, because as you say, if everything he's doing is to avoid going to prison, then it just raises questions about everything he said, because that's his entire strategy. So anyway, so I, think I, I think to just close this, uh, the loop on this, I think it would be worth listening to what uh, Preet Bharara, the former uh, U.S. attorney in the Southern District of Manhattan, had to say when he appeared on Skullduggery earlier this week and brought up on his own his assessment of the character and conduct of Michael Cohen. Let's take a listen. Another clown, Michael Cohen, whatever you think of him, if he's like the, the, the savior of, of, <laughs> of democracy because he will you know, turn state's evidence against the president or not, that guy is a documented thug and a proven convicted liar who went about self-styled fixer for Donald Trump. And you know what happens when he gets to a court of law and he gets convicted? He's, he's an apologetic, demure, almost sort of beaten man appearing before Congress. You might not buy that story, but that to me is a little bit hopeful that there's at least some place where, where clowns and idiots and, and people who bring so much pain to other people and undermine truth, there's a place that's sort of, sort of an oasis where you have to tell the truth, otherwise there are consequences. Your lawyers have to tell the truth, otherwise there are consequences. And you have to argue based on facts, not just fear and not just emotion. 
a documented thug and a proven convicted liar. So um, pretty uh, compelling words from the Democratic appointee who was the U.S. attorney in the Southern District fired by President Trump. So maybe um, in these very divided, polarized times, the one service that Michael Cohen can provide is to bring Democrats and Republicans together. They both think he's a sleazebag and a liar. (laughs) All right. Well, on that note, I think uh, we should um, just all go back to the waiting game, TikTok, and hopefully by next week when we bring you our next skullduggery, we'll be able to answer all the questions you have about the ongoing Mueller mystery. Thanks for listening to this special edition of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. Talk to you soon.